0: I think about the way that she grew up where she didn't even know she was Assyrian, and she had to discover that so that I can now build a house on that foundation and figure out what it means to be Assyrian.
1: Shalama everyone, welcome to episode 182 of the Assyrian Podcast. My name is Adessa, and for today's episode, I was quickly reminded of why this podcast is so important. It's for stories like the one you're about to hear. Earlier this April, a young woman by the name of Tenise Marie reached out to me via email and started with, I'm so excited to have found you and so many other inspiring people through a Syrian podcast. She then proceeded to describe the complicated and unique story of her Assyrian heritage, one that took me about three days to fully process before I could reply back to her. I don't want to spoil the episode with teasers here, but you've really got to listen to this one in full. What I will say is in this episode, we discuss her and her family's fascinating journey of putting the pieces of their Assyrian heritage puzzle together and what that journey has been like. For some background of who Tanise is, she is an Assyrian-Canadian singer, songwriter, performer, and recording artist based in Nelson, British Columbia, that's in Western Canada. She grew up in the remote community of Argenta with a population of about 100 people according to Wikipedia. She earned a diploma in contemporary music and technology from Selkirk College, where she studied vocal performance. Tenise is a multi-instrumentalist, but a vocalist first, and primarily sings in folk, soul, jazz, and pop styles. She is the director of human resources at the Caslow Jazz Etc. Festival, a music festival showcasing jazz, folk, blues, and funk performances from around the world in a scenic, mountainous outdoor venue. This episode is brought to you by all of us at the Assyrian Podcast. If you want to join us as a co-host, nominate someone to be our next guest, or find out how to sponsor one of our episodes or seasons, check us out at AssyrianPodcast.com. If you're also looking for the perfect gift this Christmas, we have the Assyrian Podcast apparel available on our website. I hope you enjoy this episode. Denise, welcome to the Assyrian podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. Where is this podcast finding you?
0: I'm in Nelson, British Columbia, which is in the interior of the province, and it's just two hours south of where I grew up in Argenta.
1: So I know for you, Denise, you have been on a journey of really discovering your Assyrian identity and roots. And a lot of that has been kind of uncovering. Your your mother's story and her lineage. So tell listeners a little bit about what that experience has been like and how that journey began.
0: Yeah, so my mom grew up in Argenta. She was born in the Vancouver area and was adopted and raised in Argenta along with her brother, but she actually had eight other siblings. So so my grandmother had 10 children who were all adopted, and they were all raised within British Columbia by different families. Um, some of them were in foster care for longer, and I'm still going through the process of meeting some of my aunts and uncles, which is very interesting, and, and
1: meeting cousins as well. So your your maternal grandmother's name was Esther Memo, is that correct?
0: Yes, Esther.
1: Yeah. What do you know about her?
0: I'm still learning a lot about her but what I know is that she lived in Iraq for most of her childhood and teenage years. I believe she may have been born, well, it's actually unclear to me if she was born in Turkey or Iraq still, but she as a child lived in Mosul Mm -hmm. and moved to Baghdad with her family, I think as a teenager, And I know that she worked in a laundromat in Baghdad. And at that point, she met her husband, who was actually a missionary from Scotland. And so they got married and immigrated to Canada. I'm not totally sure what the motivation was behind that. But some of the details still remain a little bit unknown to me. But unfortunately, the children had to be taken from their home in Vancouver where they lived and they were all placed in foster care or adopted. They were not all taken at the same time so for example my aunt Margie I believe was taken like directly from the hospital So yeah, kind of a few different situations there.
1: Wow. So they had immigrated together, had Mm -hmm. their first child, or were all of the children born in Canada?
0: No, actually, my oldest aunt, Jana, was born in Baghdad.
1: Okay, so the first child was born in, in Baghdad, and then as they immigrated to Canada, the other children, your aunts and uncles, were then born in Canada and later placed in in foster care, and were placed with different adoptive parents. But your 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 mother and or her brother Carrie were able mm-hmm. to be adopted by the same family.
0: Yes, that's right. So, so actually, what happened is my mom's parents who adopted her they went. I guess, I don't know what it was like back then, but they went to go, you know, choose and apply to adopt. And I guess they connected with my mom and wanted to bring her home. And in the foster care facility, they said these two come as a set. Like they were very close and they said, we're not going to separate them. So they were, yeah, they were very close. They were two and three and a half when they were adopted. And they were speaking Assyrian Syrian together, uh, which unfortunately their mother who adopted them she was sort of very English Canadian and like very she sort of came from like a very proper English family and my mom found out later through family friends who had observed this that she was discouraged from speaking Assyrian and I mean I don't imagine that the language would have necessarily survived among two young children like that but I still think it's it's kind of sad to see that that happened you know and Obviously, the trauma that comes along with, with being asked not to speak your native tongue, I think that that's something that has probably stayed with my mom. But I also noticed that she is very good with languages, and maybe that's why, because she didn't know for so many years even that English
1: wasn't her first language. Wow! And so they were taken. Her and her brother were taken into uh, their adoptive you know, family and lived in a very remote community in bc in argenta um, having no Assyrian community around them and none of their relatives around them and not speaking aramaic i mean from what your mom has told you like what was what was that experience like growing up in uh in argenta and and when did she start to I guess, be curious of figuring out or trying to trace back her her roots and and identity.
0: I mean, this was very much the time when adoptions were very closed, right? And it just wasn't spoken about, like these things just weren't spoken about. However, it was from what she has told me, and, and I can imagine this would be the case, It was very obvious that she and her brother were not related to their parents Hmm. Um, they looked very different from these people and also the parents were significantly older and they had adopted because they were not able to have their own children and they were actually i believe they were already in their 50s before they adopted them Hmm. so i think just i mean yeah i can't really imagine that myself like being my mother and yeah, being the child in that situation, because it's no one really explained it to them. But of course, they knew, you know, these aren't my biological parents. So I think that the curiosity started pretty early on for my mom. I know she has described to me that she used to sneak into the basement where the adoption records were kept. And she, she has always been a really curious person. I think that's just sort of in her nature. But she would sort of she talks about like snooping through these files and she found her adoption records and but basically there wasn't a lot of information available it was mostly about her mother about esther and it just had the country of origin as iraq and there was really nothing to say that she was a syrian as a woman in her early 20s she set out to meet some of her family and when I've asked her about it she said I always wanted to know who my mother was that was important to me so she I have to say she was very persistent from from my perspective you know I'm trying hard to imagine what this process would have been like in the 1980s you know pre-internet and I know that she wrote letters for a year before she heard from anyone.
1: Did she know at that point that she had other siblings and that they were in Canada or, or did she only have an understanding that her brother Carrie was her only sibling? Mm
0: -hmm. At that point, she didn't know about any of the other siblings and she, but her oldest sibling was Jana was the first person who she discovered. And Jana was old enough that she actually would take care of a lot of the kids at certain times, so she definitely remembered my mother and I know that she used to go visit them in the foster care as well, like and and all the kids really. So so yeah, in some ways Jana had kind of taken on like a motherly role in some ways. So I think it was pretty major for my mom to reconnect with her. And then she met some of the other siblings
1: uh, through Jana as well. And then eventually met her mother. Wow. So here is like, I, I can just imagine, I'm trying to paint the picture here, like your mom and her brother growing up in an extremely remote area. And she is trying to discover in her early 20s, as many people are just trying, you know, begin to get really curious about who they are where they come from all of all of these kind of questions that start to stem and wanting to dig deeper and here she is trying to piece the puzzles together of what little information she has pre-internet and i mean i can imagine at that point like her her you know outlook and understanding is just expanded beyond even comprehension because it's like here is now me finding out about all of these other siblings I have and trying to now understand who they are, who my mother is and understanding that there is this like Assyrian identity component of it and what is Assyrian. So what happened or from what she has told you, what happened when she had a chance to meet her other siblings and and then eventually her mother.
0: It was very interesting for her because yeah, she didn't even know that she was a Syrian until meeting her sister and mother and the other siblings. So prior to that, it was just, it was just, okay, maybe I'm Iraqi, like, you know, and, and I think for her, that was pretty vague and broad. So, well, and I know, I know that her adopted father, I don't even think he knew that she was a Syrian. So I don't think that he meant it maliciously, but just with his sort of he was very, he was actually from England, very proper, like English, very sort of looking at the world through a very colonial lens. And so my mom remembers growing up as a child being told that Assyrians don't exist anymore. You know, Assyrians are an ancient culture, they are not living anymore. So I can only imagine what it would be like to grow up with that Understanding, and then find out that you're actually a Syrian, and that Assyrians are very much
1: alive. I can, yeah, I can just imagine that has that must have been a huge turning point for her as she, you know, was beginning to understand her heritage and her ethnic roots. What happened when when she had a chance to meet her mom?
0: I think that it went fairly well for her. However, I think that I think that my grandmother was somewhat reserved. I I think that she felt a lot of remorse and regret about the way that things had gone with having to well, really with having her children taken away from her. So, I think that It was a fairly positive experience. Like my mom, she describes it as a positive experience that they had a nice conversation, but it just didn't go very deep. Like with my grandmother, I do know, I did learn later that she, she really didn't want to give up her children. She just wasn't able to care for them. She wasn't in a, in a position where she could care for them. And I learned later that it actually took her several years to sign their adoption papers for for multiple of her children. She really didn't want to let go and, and still kind of had some hope that maybe there would be someday, you know, when she was in a better position that she could raise her children. I know that some of the other children, some of my other aunts and uncles, reconnected with her later and were more involved in her life. I think people who were also living closer to her, she lived in Vancouver, but with my mom being so far away, I think that it
1: just wasn't as easy. Yeah. What was the kind of relationship that your mom and her brother had? They were very close growing up. And so as she was going through this process, I mean, was he did he have the same level of curiosity or was this something that mainly your your mom was kind of leading?
0: I don't think that he ever shared the same interest and I don't know why exactly that is. I. I have observed a little bit that especially with that generation, I find that sometimes women are a little bit more. Interested in connecting, not always, but
1: I know that in this situation, I think he was not as curious. And so for your mom, I mean, this was a a journey that she was starting to kind of figure out in her in her early 20s. Is that correct?
0: Yeah, that's right.
1: So at this point, was she already moved out and no longer living with her adoptive parents? Or at that point, what was sort of their uh, relationship or connection with each other as she was starting to kind of uncover more and more of this?
0: Yeah, she she had moved out. She was living elsewhere. And actually, her mother, her adopted mother, passed away when she was nine. I I always have to remember that my mother never really had a mother you know and and that's an interesting that's an interesting thing to sort of be working through you know because sometimes i think um you know i'm learning more and more about assyrian culture and there's sort of this very clear idea of what an assyrian mother is right and i definitely haven't experienced that which is interesting and i i just remind myself that i haven't even really experienced a mother who was raised by a mother you know so so i would say she did a very good job considering there was no one to teach her but i believe that that her father was fairly supportive of her going through this exploration i don't know that they talked about it extensively but there was never really too much pushback i know he was fairly reserved but i don't think he discouraged her from from exploring it
1: At some point, your mother has you, Mm -hmm. and you were raised in Argenta, where she grew up. What was the experience like growing up in Argenta?
0: Argenta is remote, and it is unincorporated, which means there are not businesses. It's a very small place. About 100 people live there. There is a post office that's what we have there's a post office and a community hall and the kind of events that happen there are square dances so <laughs> some some community group events but yeah it's um what can i say i'm also an only child so growing up there was a little lonely i had other friends who were also only children and so i think Those were kind of natural fits. I have one best friend who's still my best friend and her name's Emily and she also is an only child. So I think that I was really lucky to have her, you know, and we actually both loved singing. It was just something we both came to really naturally. So that's something we were able to share. I think that I did spend a lot of time alone and I think that in some ways maybe that created the space that I needed to turn to creativity and and be creative. I, I would go along with my mom to, they had these things called sing-alongs, so they would just go to someone's house and someone would play piano and they would sing folk songs. Argenta is, it is actually, um, it was originally sort of founded by Draft Dodgers, that's the history of this place. Um, so it's sort of it's a little bit steeped in <laughs> hippie culture of the 60s what, and 70s. what are
1: what are draft dodgers?
0: Oh, so a lot of okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> so Americans who who came to Canada to avoid fighting in the Vietnam War?
1: Oh, okay,
0: yes, but that's not why my family came there. So my my grandpa, who adopted my mom, was actually, he he was originally from England, as I said, and he was invited to Argenta because he was an electrician. And he had, in World War II, been working as an electrician, and then he went to China and was setting up electrical plants in villages that didn't have electricity. So he met some Quakers in Toronto. That's the, okay, so that's the other part of the Argenta thing is It was founded by draft dodgers and Quakers. Quakerism is is one of the the fundamental elements of Argenta. (laughs) And so he met a fellow Quaker in Toronto who invited him to come to this place called Argenta and build a power plant because at that point there was no electricity. I guess this would have been in the 1950s. So in the 1950s, no electricity in Argenta And my grandpa went and built a small hydro plant, uh, which is still operating, actually, and it powers 10 houses in Argenta. So now there is, you know, BC Hydro in Argenta, but there is also still this plant and my mom's house is still on it. So that's that's kind of a cool little piece of of that family's legacy. But just to give you an idea of how small this place is.
1: That is actually really incredible. I I didn't know that. Um even when we were talking or chatting a little bit before the the interview. That is a very fun fact of how they ended up there. Something I wanted to ask you was, you know, as your mom has been uncovering and and still trying to piece together and I think with your help of this Assyrian side of her and history of her and her family, I was curious to ask you like what your journey has been in terms of understanding yourself as a Syrian.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would say that my mom and I have had very different journeys, right? So I like to think of it as she sort of poured the foundation, right? I mean, because I think about the way that she grew up where she didn't even know she was a Syrian, And she had to discover that so that I can now build a house on that foundation and figure out what it means to be a Syrian. Because I think for my mother, she's been very interested in reconnecting with family and in those relationships. But she has not taken such a deep dive into understanding the culture itself. She has put some effort into learning some of the history, but... I think that I've gone a little bit deeper into the culture and the history than she has. I think that this is partially just because of where she grew up. And, and you know, I think maybe if she had been in Toronto, it might have been more accessible, you know. But for me, I think too, just being of a different generation where we are looking at things a little bit differently now. I know from my mom, being raised by white people was a certain experience for her, right? Mm -hmm. And that sort of in my daily life, I'm, I'm definitely putting effort into thinking about things in a lens that is not just strictly colonial. So I think that that's why I've sort of taken an interest in trying to understand the history better. But I don't know, I guess it started because I get asked all the time, where I'm from, even even growing up here. I think that I get asked where I'm from a lot. I get asked about my ethnicity a lot. And I know that people are not really asking me if my dad's family is English and Scottish.
2: Mm.
0: You know, I know that that's not really what they're interested in hearing about. And I always often will like start by saying, well, my dad's side is English and Scottish. And, and then they're like, okay, and, you know, like... <laughs> <laughs> what else is in the cocktail, you know? And uh, so eventually when I come out with the Assyrian thing, it's, well, it's so many things, right. It's first it's, Oh, Syrian, right. Of course, many people don't know. Like there really just is not an Assyrian community where I live. So nobody knows who Assyrians are and that's the first obstacle. And then (laughs) I think that that's really where it began for me was feeling like I had to explain to people what Assyrians actually are. And then at a certain point, I realized that I didn't know that much about Assyrians. Mm -hmm. You know, so at a certain point, I decided I want to have a bit more education and integrity behind behind this thing that i'm describing to people you know and i have to say that discovering a syrian podcast was a huge part of this journey for me and well it's interesting actually it was a a boyfriend and now ex-boyfriend who bought me for my birthday a book by sargon donabed the reforging a forgotten history and i started reading it and was you know immediately pretty fascinated and then when I found a Syrian podcast, I kind of scrolled through. And when I found his episode, I was like, oh, my gosh, it's a it's a name that I recognize. <laughs> um, and so I listened to his episode and just I don't know how else to describe it. My brain exploded. It was so interesting. And then I basically combed through a Syrian podcast. And I found and I was kind of looking. I was kind of looking for something music related because that that is so connected with what i do and so when i found nadia yunans interview and listened to that i was really i was really touched by it i remember specifically her talking about how when she hears assyrian music she doesn't need to understand every word but just the feeling that it evokes in her she feels like she understands that and can speak that language and i thought that was really beautiful I think a really huge part of this for me has been that when I finally, this is going to sound funny, but when I finally felt brave enough to listen to Assyrian music, I was absolutely enamored. Like I just, I just fell in love with the music and couldn't believe that I hadn't listened to it earlier.
1: Do you recall what your first song was that you, you listened to? Yeah,
0: so actually, it was hearing Ilona sing for the first time.
1: Of Mesopotamian fusion. Yes. She has a beautiful voice and I think what they've done in terms of renditions of songs have been very beautiful and and unique in that way. So I don't blame you for (laughs) being completely enamored. And I mean, you have also like in in this journey for yourself and connecting it to music, you know, you have recently produced a a music video of a cover of Aghalade, which is a very emotional song kind of expressing the grief experienced by those in the Assyrian genocide. Could you walk the listeners through what that experience was like
0: for you? It's so interesting. My journey with connecting with other Assyrians has been sort of like following the breadcrumbs that the universe has laid out for me. And I don't ever remember anything in my life coming with as much ease as this journey has. It's very interesting. But when I discovered Nadia on a Syrian podcast, I completely just cold emailed her based on the email that was in the show notes. And I knew that she was a PhD student and I was not expecting a response for weeks, honestly. And I emailed her on a Friday night and she emailed me back on a Saturday morning. And I just could not believe it. And yeah, I just expressed to her that I was really interested in connecting with the Assyrian community and specifically connecting with the Assyrian musical community. And she introduced me to the Assyrian Arts Institute in California. That's how that introduction was made. And it was so funny, honestly, Nadia had just mentioned that I might be interested in singing in the choir, which is a small ensemble of mostly classically trained vocalists called Assyrian Women so as soon as i saw this i'm like okay they're called assyrian women i just i was so interested and i started listening to the repertoire that they did and i was sold and it was so funny it just kind of happened it was it everything happened at once it was like okay tenise like send in your audition video and i was honestly a little nervous because i don't really identify as a classical singer i'm very much more trained in like in pop and jazz I have a diploma in contemporary music and technology that I got from Selkirk College which is in Nelson in the in a small city that I live in and so it's a very specialized program and it's a great program it's very it's very geared toward working musicians however yeah I definitely don't feel as confident singing classical and opera so I was a little intimidated honestly by auditioning for the group but it did it anyway and was accepted and yeah and i'm just so excited because this is my first year in the choir and i'm going to california later this month but this was all kind of the precursor to being asked to do a spotlight piece with the Assyrian arts institute as a new choir member so this this whole journey has very much been about saying yes to opportunities and so when i was asked to do a spotlight piece I said yes, and the song that was chosen for me was Akalare. actually was not familiar with it prior to. So I took on learning it and it was a very interesting process to go through because I don't speak the language. I'm very interested in learning the language and I'm going to be taking some language classes. I was very not hesitant, but I definitely wanted to do a good job and I wanted to be understood. I wanted to do the best I could to have the words be understood and understanding that it is really such an iconic song within the Assyrian community I I really wanted to honor that I was I was completely honored that I was asked to to perform this song particularly as you sort of referenced it does really describe a lot of the genocide that was experienced by Assyrians and I mean, it it was quite an emotional process, honestly, to go through it. I I did get to meet Aglantine Varda. Oh, you did? Yeah, over, over FaceTime and received some coaching from her. It was a very interesting process. Leah, who is the choral coordinator of Assyrian Women, was also coaching me through some of the pronunciation. So we met first, and uh, I had a phonetic written version of of how the words were pronounced um, and we sort of worked through that together and then we met together with Aglantine to go through that and kind of yeah get everything the way it was meant to be and it was interesting to being coached through the pronunciation because as you know there are so many different dialects of the language so it was it was a it was an amazing learning experience not only in the language but also there's this pretty persistent theme in my life of realizing that i cannot actually please everyone i can do my best even if i had done it perfectly <laughs> as per one dialect there would still be some people who wouldn't understand or they would say well that's not the way that i say it and i I really tried to just embrace that early on and embrace that I, I would do my best with the resources that I had. Yeah, I think I think it was a good experience for me because I, I definitely tend to be quite a perfectionist about these things, but sometimes you can't be.
1: Well, I think you did an incredible job and I am still so amazed and impressed by your ability to be able to pick up something like that and and have it really seem so seamless and also be able to really create the scenery that kind of, I don't know, it just goes so perfectly with the way that you performed it. So um, you did a really wonderful job with it. Something that I wanted to also ask you about is like as you've been going through this uh, journey of understanding, you know, your your Assyrian roots, I know you've you've made it a point to really let people know who Assyrians are with every opportunity mm-hmm. that you've had and even if that means like putting it in your bio or bringing it up at shows or radio interviews. Sometimes that's not an easy task right because you're dealing like you had mentioned earlier people having no familiarity with this these people right this like Assyrian people and how easy it could be for you to just remove all those things right but you've really made it a point to have it be something where a, a conversation could be started i imagine that has been intentional
0: <laughs> yeah that's a that's such an interesting question because it is something i've started integrating more and more because I think at first I was a little bit tentative about it, but, you know, I think about it and it's it's really not something I asked for. I didn't ask to be a Syrian, but just like I didn't ask for my mom to be adopted, you know, like I didn't ask to be cut off from these roots or be disconnected, but it's a thing that happened. It's the way that it happened. And I think just always being asked Like, where are you from? Where's your family from? Why do you have curly hair? Why why does your nose look like that? (laughs) Growing up in a place where there's really not much diversity at all, I, I think that that's why it really came to my attention. And I think accepting that part of me and realizing like I was quite insecure as a teenager. And it really took me a long time to come to terms with having this big, crazy, curly hair. And I think that I was always afraid of like I never would wear my hair down you know I would always like wear it up and I think I was afraid actually of taking up space you know mm-hmm. I would always feel like I shouldn't take up space in the world and that's something I'm really trying to deconstruct like that whole belief system is something I'm trying to deconstruct and so that's a big part of it, you know, like getting on stage and rocking my big curly hair, <laughs> my big Assyrian curly hair. That's that's definitely a part of it and it's a and it's not that it's not scary. I think some people say that as a performer you have to be fearless and I don't really think that that's true. I think that you can have fear and then you can overcome that. You can do things anyway and I guess when you're afraid of something and then you do it anyway, that that actually means that you're brave, you're courageous. And I don't know. I mean, I'm really just interested in celebrating everything that makes us who we are. And and going through this process, it's, it's hard sometimes to not get too much tunnel vision of like, you know, I've been really, really pursuing these Assyrian connections. And it's hard to remember like, oh yeah, there are also other things. And this is also just one part of who I am. And, you know, a friend of mine said, he's a drummer who I work with here in town. And I remember him saying to me, he said, you have to learn to love all the parts of who you are and love everywhere that you came from. So I don't know. I always think about that. I I really took that to heart.
1: Yeah. In your experience so far, like, what does it mean for you? What does it mean to be a Syrian?
0: I think if there's any common thread that I've been able to notice, it's that Assyrians are just so, I mean, I know this word is overused, but just so resilient and perseverant and persistent. And that's something I I really admire. And I don't know, you know, I don't know if this will change with, with more people that I meet. But like so far, I just have to say that everyone's been so encouraging and like even just the other day you know someone said don't be afraid of learning the language just because of the way that your accent sounds and I don't know that kind of encouragement is I really appreciate that I I really appreciate the community the the way that Assyrians are so community-minded because that's something that I haven't really experienced so much in my life. There is uh there is a community in Argenta where I grew up just because it's so it's so small and remote and rural and people sort of need each other to survive in some ways. But I think it's been interesting, you know, I because I have so many cousins that are Assyrian or, you know, partially Assyrian. And it's so interesting because some some of them I don't know very well because of the adoption, right? But then when I go to meet them, it's like, oh, okay, like I, I look like you. And and then on my dad's side, I have cousins who they're wonderful and I love them. And they're great. But I look at them and I'm like, I, I just don't look like you, you know? Mm-hmm. Maybe as an only child, I'm, I'm really interested in genetics. And I don't know. I think that there's something, I think, yeah, as an only child, because I haven't seen my genetics like mirrored back at me in the same way of like a the same expression of your parents' genetics that's been yeah that's been something that that I'm very interested in and i think there's something really special about about that and i just i just think this assyrian blood's pretty strong i do it's <laughs>
1: It is, it totally is. Do you in this experience have have you felt like you and your mom have bonded even more in a in a special way?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's funny. My mom is my mom and I are very close and we're very similar in some ways, but we're also very different and she's a product of her generation and that she's a little more reserved than I am. I'm definitely very expressive i'm pretty like emotional i i write songs and i get on stage and sing songs that i wrote that are pretty personal about my own life and she's a little more even than i am Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. so she doesn't get as sad about things (laughs) but she also doesn't get i don't know that she gets as excited about things so our our demeanors are a little bit different in that way. I guess what I'm trying to say is sometimes I find it a little bit hard to gauge. <laughs> I don't think her interest in the culture and the history is as profound as mine. Like, for example, when I go to California later this month, I'm also going to be meeting some of my Assyrian family, which includes my grandma's younger sisters and some of my mom's cousins, which I'm, I'm really excited about. This is like Is a huge deal for me, and it's funny. I've started talking to some of my aunts and uncles about this, and they've and they've been very encouraging. And they're like, "Wow, you're doing this. That's that's really cool, Denise." And and the question I keep getting is, "Is your mom going?" (laughs) Mm. And I'm sort of like, I feel like she should, but you know, but that's but that's her journey, you know. And yeah, that's kind of what she's willing to allow in. And and I have to always acknowledge in this situation that. I'm not the one who was adopted. And I did grow up with my mother and I know who my mother is and I know who my father is. And, and there's never been any question about that for me. So I know that she had a very different experience and I try to be sensitive about that while also exploring this on my own terms, because it is also still my family. But yeah, I mean, I I definitely acknowledge that I'll never understand what what it feels like to be adopted and I will never have that experience. So I I know that that, you know, for my mom and some of her other siblings, I know that that adoption trauma manifests in different ways for different people and and how willing they are to reconnect and and their feelings about my grandmother and about the family and about the whole situation. Also some some of the kids were different ages when they were adopted and some have more memories than others and you know and not all these memories are good and and there's also a lot of repression I think that happens with trauma so so I guess yeah I think that we have gotten closer through this I think that but I also think there's part of it that I'm always kind of nerding out about like this new Assyrian person I met and she's kind of like okay Denise like (laughs) she's like I get it I get it like she's (laughs) I
1: get it. We're (laughs) Assyrian. I can I can totally relate with that (laughs) in different circumstances, but it's usually much more innate for me to geek out about that stuff than some other, you know, others. And that's maybe just our nature, right? Like it's it's a lot more fascinating. But also, like you mentioned, I think obviously other factors play into that, and it's and it's complicated. I understand, you know, what you mean when when you say that in terms of your experience versus your mom's experience. Last question that I have that we love to ask all of our guests is that we have listeners from all over the world. And if you had, you know, one thing that you'd like to say to them, what would that be?
0: Well, I, you know, something that I want to impart is I think maybe that it's okay to be interested in where you come from, no matter what the circumstances were around it. So I don't know if there is anyone listening who... Is adopted or or has family has been adopted I just think that reconnecting with your roots is you don't have to you know it's not vital but for me it has been a really rewarding thing that has helped me understand myself better and understand the world better and and I've just been so it's not that I didn't have any fear about it you know but I have been so encouraged throughout the process that I'm. I'm just learning that it's okay. It's okay that I want to know where I came from. I specifically, I've had two friends here in the Kootenays who, who have, who both have Dukhobor heritage. Dukhobors were from Russia, I believe. It's is the the sect of the religion itself, and and so a lot of Dukhobors who they left Russia and came to whichever countries they came to. In this case, Canada because they were pacifists and didn't want to fight in the wars and so yeah i've had a couple musician friends here who have been pursuing getting more connected with their Bor roots and doing it through music and doing it through like learning russian learning hymns in russian so my friend sarah orton and my friend Alin as well and honestly seeing other people connect with their heritage no matter what it is and being brave to speak the language, you know. I think in a lot of in a lot of situations, even where adoption is not part of the story, sometimes languages are lost because immigrants come to a country like Canada. And a lot of the time there's a lot of there's a lot of trauma involved in learning English. And like maybe you're othered by by others in the community and I think that for for that reason like sometimes you know the language isn't passed on to the children there are so many reasons why this wouldn't happen right and so I think seeing my friends being brave enough to learn the language of their of their parents and their grandparents even though I think this you know can be a very intimidating thing if you don't grow up with it and and seeing that kind of courage in people has really inspired me and and so yeah I think that that's kind of what I want to say it's it's okay to be curious about where you come from and I kind of want to pass on you know what my friend said like I think you should
1: learn to love all the parts of yourself love that well thank you so much this has been an amazing conversation Denise thanks for having me i see Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the episode as much as I did. You can find out more information about Tenise by viewing the show notes for this episode. Also, given that this is my last episode for the year, I have to give a shout out to the people behind the scenes that helped make this episode possible. Steve for splicing the episode, Rhoda for proofreading everything and my helper when I'm stuck on a title, Stephanie for being our social media guru, and to the podcast team. It really is a team effort to bring you these episodes each week. Thank you and see you next week.